on today's episode, Overtraining Syndrome and Recovery with Dr. Carl Foster. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default, become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. you are excited to continue this journey of recovery month. Uh, Dr. Carl Foster is um, following two heavyweights with um, Shona Halson and Christy Ashwanden. And yeah, he was super exciting. I had, we're going to chat today all around overtraining syndrome. And he was so easy to interview because first of all, he's a talker. And secondly, he just loves telling stories around overtraining syndrome. It's almost like I was reading a book when I was interviewing him. He is, let me get my paper. I'm actually standing. I'm usually sitting, but um, I'm managing hamstring tendinopathy at the moment. So doing my um, post editing in standing, let me just grab my paper. So um, Dr. Carl Foster is, uh, he is a exercise physiologist in the department of exercise and sports science. He has, get this, published, he is three papers shy of publishing 500 papers. He said uh, before we started recording, his, this is his last work year and he has the goal of getting to 500 to be a massive achievement. Uh, all around clinical physiology, he has been a part of the paper uh, on prevention, diagnosis and treatment of overtraining syndrome, a joint consensus statement. And that's where I sort of built a lot of the content for the interview. He was a contributor in Good To Go. And <clears throat> reading that book is what actually made me reach out to Dr. Carl Foster to talk about overtrained syndrome because uh, this condition, it, within this name, it's alluding uh, that people are overtraining, but really they could be just under-recovering and that's why I thought it'd be a really nice concept to introduce to you guys during recovery month. And we ended up doing it in a very entertaining fashion with interviewing Carl. So I think we'll get under underway. If I'll probably mention, if you haven't already heard, the Run Smarter app is well underway. It uh, People have been reaching out to me saying they're learning so much just after just browsing through a couple of minutes and it seems like they're easily navigating what they what topics they want to learn more about. It does have my collection of blogs. It has all the collection of all the podcast episodes that are out. And yeah, if you just want to browse through, start learning, start looking at some research, that's what the app's designed for. So if you want to search, run Smarter App, wherever you do download your apps, either Android, iOS, 
then uh, do so. Have a have a play around. In the more tab, there are other things like my eBooks. Uh, a lot of people are contacting me being like, where can I get your eBook that you mentioned in season one? You can now go to the app and get those eBooks. Um, and the email five-day challenge, these are all free, but they do require an email sign up if you do participate in the five-day challenge and the, did I say five-week challenge before? Five-day challenge and the eBooks. So you do require like submitting your email, but the blogs and the uh, podcast episodes, just like anything else, it's all free. You, you can access it straight away. I also have paid content on there. So like my paid courses, injury prevention, um, dealing with certain specific injuries and also increasing or boosting your running performance. Um, there are paid courses on there, which is all like video content, um, which I'm really excited about, excited to share with you guys. Okay, so that's all from me. Let's bring on Dr. Carl Foster. Dr. Carl Foster, welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast. Good, good, good day, Brody. <laughs> Can you uh, maybe just start off? We've, we've got a bit of detail about you um, in the intro, but before we get started into overtraining syndrome, can you maybe just describe or a brief summary of your academic career and how you got involved in this particular topic? Yeah, I started out with the, in, in, the intention of running under four minutes in the mile and becoming a physician. That's what the two things I went to. Okay, very nice. Do, and I failed at both of them miserably. <laughs> uh, I, I lacked uh, talent in one case and the um, uh, study discipline in the other. But uh, uh, I, ha I had a lot of fun in the process and got a good education. And then just as my undergraduate was ending, I ran into a guy named Jack Daniels who's well known as a, a as a track coach, but he's also a PhD physiologist. Curiously, his first uh, Olympic medal was in Melbourne in 56 ah. in, the, in the modern pentathlon where he got a, a bronze team medal. Anyway, he was interested in studying runners. And so I moved to uh, study with him and it was a very serendipitous thing because we fit well and did some interesting stuff. I, I went low, low, low later to work with, with David Costell, who was uh, well-known in terms of the, the running community for my postdoc. And then I, I, I moved later to Milwaukee, which is a, a very cold place, to work in clinical physiology, uh, cardiac rehab. And then by, by pure accident, we stumbled into the speed skating team. Now I'm, I'm from, from Texas which has the, the same uh, uh, climate as sort of mid-Australia. And so uh, when I was a kid, if, you, if there was ice outside, your mother kept you inside for the 15 minutes it took to melt. <laughs> and so uh, somehow I wound up studying speed skaters. And uh, we, uh, at the time, uh, the interest in overtraining syndrome sort of began to emerge because people realized that something was happening. And... Uh, the rest of it was sort of serendipity from that. And then I, I left the, the clinical world about 20 years ago to, to teach where I am now at a, a, a normal uh, a teaching university in La Crosse. Very good. Wow. I think uh, the topic itself with overtraining syndrome actually came to me after, well, during the book, Good to Go, and was coming up with ideas around recovery month and uh, the topics I should include in the episodes I should include. And this sort of made perfect sense. I hadn't thought about doing an overtraining, uh, overtraining syndrome topic on this podcast, but 
when it comes to recovery, a lot of people, when they think of overtraining syndrome, they think it's the exercise component of things like they're just working too hard. But a lot of people um, need to understand that's actually the, the balance of exercise with recovery. And I do uh, quote Shona Halson a lot. And she said that there's a belief out there that you can't overtrain, you can only under recover. And so I thought that was a very nice um, quote and a very nice way to come into this topic around overtraining syndrome. The I, I delved into some of your papers and they tend to explain this concept of overreaching and the process that's involved with overreaching. So perhaps we can start off um, getting, a, a, I guess, an idea around what the ideal overreaching process is, does involve and how someone can become a better runner because of it. Yeah, you know, if I could go back a little bit, the historically the two people that are really important. There was a Canadian guy named Eric Bannister who came up with the first real uh, quantitative way to um, account for training and the training impulse or Trimp method. And when you do that, if you conceptualize, if you go out for a run, uh, you be, become fitter. You, you you grow more capillaries. Your heart gets stronger. You you, you grow more mitochondria, but you also get tired. So you have fitness and fatigue happening at the same time. And Eric came up with a way of accounting for um, how these things might influence performance. Um, uh, you know, for example, if you, if you go out and run uh, 30K after my interview, uh, tomorrow you're, you're gonna be slower because that's a long run and you're gonna be tired. And, but, but if you rest for a few days, then you become faster because the fitness overwhelms the fatigue. Uh, at about the same period of time, and this was in the mid 70s, early 80s, um, a German guy named Manfred Lehmann uh, began to write about what was called staleness, which is the old term that athletes would have where they would just lose their ability to compete at the top level and they would say stale and nobody had any idea of what accounted uh, for it. Uh, anyway, so there's this interplay between you have to get tired, you have to press yourself a little bit in training in order to improve. But because athletes are extraordinarily motivated people, uh, they tend to push too hard. That's their natural inclination. And if they get tired and they have a bad workout, their natural inclination outside of saying a, a, a few naughty words is to train even harder. And that leads to sort of a, a, a cyclic process that's, that is fairly unhappy. Uh, now, uh, the, the problem with the term overtraining is it's been used both as a condition, I'm overtrained, and also as a verb, I'm overtraining, meaning I'm hard, training harder than usual. And it's led to a lot of confusion in the area. And so we, we've sort of tried to get to the term where overtraining syndrome is this, for lack of a better word, it's this illness you get where uh, the term I use is you lose your Zoom. You know, whatever you used to be able to do, now you're no longer able to do it and training doesn't make it any better. And in, uh, if you have a hard day of training or, or two hard days of training or a week of hard training, you might call that overreaching. I'm training harder than I'm used to. It's a verb. And uh, your performance might go down transiently, but then if you have a normal two or three or, or a week long recovery cycle, then you get better. And that's a normal periodization thing that, 
that athletes and coaches have been doing for essentially forever. Now there's two types of overreaching. There's one called functional overreaching, which is good because everybody gets a little tired, their body adapts to it during their, their resting period and they come out of it better. And so you, you theoretically get better and better at each cycle that you, you have. And that's the result you want. There's a non-functional overreaching, which is just really where you, you overreach either longer or more severely. And, and that's really all the definition there is to it. There's not a quantitative measure to it where the process of recovery takes a long time. And it may take such a long time that you begin to lose some of your fitness. So it's sort of a delicate balance you're in. And uh, the problem again is that athletes are very highly motivated. They're willing to train very hard to accomplish a goal. And sometimes they get themselves into these situations where they don't, have, uh, they, they don't recover very well. And then suddenly after that is overreaching, there's sort of a magic line that you cross where even when you do recovery training, you don't get any better. In other words, you've lost it. And so you get into what might be called overtraining syndrome, which means that uh, there's nothing physically wrong with you. Uh, you, can, you can go to the physician and they can do all the evaluation they want and they can't find anything wrong with you and, and, and yet you can't perform anymore. And uh, you train easily and you try to recover and you don't get better. And it tends to be a, a season ending kind of, of problem. And in some people it's career ending because again, we don't really know what causes it, but it, uh, it, it doesn't seem to recover in some people very well. Uh, depending on how you define it, because there's no fixed definition, uh, you, can, you can say that in serious athletes, 10% uh, of people per year wind up with overtraining syndrome. And probably 50% of, of serious athletes wind up with it at least once in their high level career. The other bad news is that a guy who's running four hours in the marathon, who's not a really a top athlete by anybody's stretch, uh, they're able to get it as, as much as somebody who's chasing two hours in the marathon. And so it, it's relative to your performance, you lose what you had and what you gained, and it, you can't get it back. The problem is it's a diagnosis of exclusion. Uh, you, uh, you don't feel that bad. You're not sick. You don't have the sniffles. You don't have a fever. You just don't feel like you're going when you go out for a run or, or whatever your event is. And you, you eventually try to rest and it doesn't get better. And you rest more and it doesn't get better. And you go to the physician and they do some blood work and thump and poke on you and they say there's nothing objectively wrong with you uh, and yet you're you, you, you aren't what you were you've lost what you had and uh, uh, you know to, to athletes who are very performance oriented and you know if, if you, you're a journalist if you're a little bit off or if I'm a I'm a professor if I'm a little bit off nobody notices it very much but if you're if you're on the track and somebody shoots the gun off and you're five percent off everybody in the planet knows about it. And so the nature of sport itself uh, lends to, to, to be very visible when you get it. And then again, because athletes are these unique people that are motivated to work hard to get a, a result, they, uh, they get frustrated about it. And so what do they do? They train yeah. harder. It almost seems like there's 
kind of like a spectrum of overreaching like an over just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know i have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge this is one email per day for five days learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury the sign up link is in the show notes so fill in your details and i'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow reaching spectrum and earlier in the podcast like earlier episodes of the podcast i uh, introduce this concept of adaptation, like the adaptation sweet spot, the enough, enough load, enough trigger in order for yeah. the body to say, I've um, dealt with a certain increase in load. I need to adapt because of it. And uh, I guess this adaptation sweet spot would be what you might consider functional overreaching, like constantly hitting exactly. that sweet spot. But then if you sl- continuously overdo it, you're getting to a point where the body takes longer and longer to recover from that. And then if you follow that spectrum to the severe side of things, you then are left with not only is the body taking longer and longer to, re- to recover from this trigger, but now it starts heading the opposite direction. Now you're, you're just not adapting at all to your training response. And then you're actually getting worse the more you um, start to introduce load. Is that correct? That's precisely. That's exactly how it works. Okay. And beautiful. if you have a good coach who can recognize that, and you know, the, the function of a coach is to be objective. And if they recognize it, then um, the, 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 they can sit you down and say, it's time to take a, a little bit of a rest and then you get better. But in a lot of athletes, either their coach doesn't see it or their coach is too motivated or particularly with it, with adult, what you might say, serious recreational athletes, they're coaching themselves and, and you're not objective when you're looking at your own performance. And so if mm-hmm. you have a single good, good workout, you think you're ready for the Olympics. If you say, if you have a single bad workout, you think you're ready to, uh, for the old folks home. Yeah. And so, but again, the, the natural response to failure is more effort. And that yeah. happens in almost any of the professions as well. You know, if you're a physician and you lose a patient and because you're too sleepy, because you've been on call, uh, you, you, you don't go home and go to sleep. You go to the library and read about what it was that caused the problem. If you're a, a musician and you have a bad concert uh, because you're tired and on the road and you just are beat up, uh, you, you, you don't go to sleep. You, you go to the studio and practice some more. So it's, it's sort of the disease of accomplishment-oriented people. And in athletics, whatever variety of athletics you're in, it's, it's exceedingly obvious when your performance is down. Yeah. And uh, in fact, the, the real secret to this came, um, the, there's a fellow in Belgium named Romain Musen, who's been the senior author of, of both of the good consensus papers that are out there. And uh, uh, I was actually part of the second consensus paper. And uh, if you read through it, uh, we we wrote all this stuff down and it's got big flowery language and it's a bunch of people who should know what they're doing at the bottom line. We say, we don't know what the hell this is, but it's bad. You shouldn't get it. And so, and that's really the state of the art. It's, it's something you don't want to get The For me, the real secret to understanding it came from racehorses in the Netherlands. Um, uh, Horses get a phenomenon called off their feed where they don't eat right. Uh, they kick their stalls, they bite their handlers, and they don't run on the track particularly well. 
And horses, as for good performers as they are, are very fragile. They can get this stuff easily. And so there was a, uh, a, a veterinarian in the Netherlands named Gert Browns, who was working down in the southern part of the Netherlands with a, a very well-known physiologist named Harm Kuypers. And so they began to try to study racehorses with this. And they, uh, they got this big horsey treadmill where you could run horses till they came off the back of it. And then they started training them and they had a normal day on day off cycle, which is how you train horses. And they got better on the treadmill. You're supposed to get better when you train. And then they trained harder and they got better, but they're still using this oscillating pattern. Then they trained even harder and they got better, but the curve is beginning to flatten. And finally they got to the point where they said, well, we can't train them any harder on the hard days. Let's train them harder on the easy days. And immediately, they deteriorated. They got this syndrome. And, I, and, and again, if, if, if I get uh, overtraining syndrome, who cares? My cat cares because my cat loves me and my, my girlfriend cares because she loves me. Nobody else on planet earth cares. I mean, you know, and even if I was a, a, a young guy who was a good athlete, if I fail at the Olympics, well, they say, well, tough about that or you didn't prepare right or something, but nobody really cares. But if a horse gets overtraining syndrome or off their feed syndrome, it's, uh, you know, somebody loses a lot of money because horse racing involves money. And so when Herbert Brown published his paper, and I, I'm actually pretty good friends with, with Harm Kuypers, who was his professor, I talked to Harm a little bit and, and I began to try to say, can I account for this? And I started drawing pictures on the paper and trying to account for it mathematically, was there a formula? And we came up with the idea that the variation between hard days and easy days within the space of a week was the deal. And we wound up calling it monotony uh, simply because I had a Dutch speed skating coach at the time uh, who couldn't say the word uh, variability. It just doesn't come out of a Dutch mouth. And so I used the word monotony or monotony where it's always hard. And if you have hard days and easy days, you almost can't get overtrained. Shauna Halson's quite right is if you manage your recovery right, you'll never get this. The problem is how do you manage your recovery? And we came up with a little quantitative index of monotony, which is just the mean of the daily training within a week divided by the standard deviation, which you can do on any hand calculator. And then we could calculate something called strain, which is sort of the training load times the training monotony. Because again, I'm a 73 year old man. If I go out for my daily walk, I'm not training very hard. So I could do the, exactly the same thing every day. But if you're going out one day to run 20 miles and it's very stressful, you gotta have a recovery day you know, to, to balance that. And if you, if you don't, you wind up getting in trouble. The other thing we found over the years is it's not only training. Uh, if you're working really hard, so your sleeping schedule screwed up. You know, if you've got a, a deadline as a journalist and you're doing 14 hour days, but you still have to have it in your mind, you, you, you wanna prepare and run a marathon. So you're burning the candle at both ends. If you travel internationally, which is a you know, wonderful thing to do, but it's stressful on the body. Those all seem to add to the equation. If you're uh, in a complicated situation in your, in your business 
or in your house where you don't really rest. And a lot of people, particularly adult athletes, they say, okay, on the weekends, I'll go out and I'll, I'll have two really humongous training days. But then during the week, they've got to go to work, but they don't really take true recovery. And so they never have a time to really just sit back and relax. And again, the problem is that's antithetical to what athletes do because they're accomplishment-oriented people. And it's always worked for them that the harder they work, the better they get until you get to a certain point and then that doesn't work anymore. Now, having said that, my impression is that overtraining syndrome is really common in top-level athletes where there's a lot of performance demands and expectations. There's also the same thing in athletes at what I call the performance cusp. You have a schoolboy who goes to university and is going to a higher level of competition. So they have to train harder. Or you have an athlete who's been a, a good regional level athlete that if they could just improve by 5%, they'd be a national level athlete. If they can improve by 5% more, they'd be an Olympic level athlete where you can see the prize right in front of your nose. And so you get sort of seduced to train a little bit harder. And this really came to me, uh, oh, 20 years ago, we were, I'd come up with this plan that uh, was based on the Dutch racehorses and how to quantitate it. And so I got the speed skating team to uh, fill out some training forms and did my calculations. And I showed the, the data to the coaches. And this was in October, which in the, the North America, you're coming into the fall. The, the World Cup for speed skating is just ready to begin. And so the coaches are focusing on doing the last preparations of the year. You know, we've got to get ready to compete because everything else is tapering. And I showed them where they got, where they said, look, look, lads, why don't we just skip the recovery day this week? Okay, we'll do that, coach. Of course, we'll <laughs> do that. And But then every, the next week, every last one of them was sick with a cold. And again, one of the simple, very, very simple markers is uh, uh, small infections. You know, you get a GI upset or you get a, a little cold and it's not anything consequential. They often seem to come at times when you're training too much. But then again, if you're a top athlete, you probably try to train through it. And the reason you got sick in the first place is maybe you were training a little harder than you can adapt to. And we went and actually uh, tracked how often people got colds and we, we tried to match that up with this pattern. And every time the, the, the product of load and monotony got above a certain range, they had colds. Well, we were able to account for like 86% of respiratory infections. Wow. And again, in speed skating, it's a winter sport. Uh, we have an indoor venue at the place I was at in, in the US, but that means you're breathing recycled air. So you're breathing everybody else's bugs and you get really tired because you're training hard. And there's a phenomenon that is debated enormously, but it's called the open window theory. Whereas if, if you encounter a bug, uh, whether or not you get sick is dependent on what's happening on the inside of you. And if you've really worn yourself out, then you seem to be more susceptible to getting these little bugs. And so again, it goes back to, to Shauna's point is if you do recovery right, you can train as hard as you want, you don't get overtraining syndrome. 
Yeah, uh, Carl, you're making my job very easy because I'm just sitting back and listening to you talk for 10 minutes and you're just talking about the whole story of overtraining syndrome. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, I guess I was going to call the title of this episode the overtraining syndrome trap because it almost seems like a trap in a way that if someone starts, if they're performing at a high level and then they start diminishing on performance, it's almost a trap to think that they need more training when they could be um, not, un, like not knowing that they're actually needing to have more time off. They're needing like to enhance their recovery rather than build up their um, training. Seriously. But in fact, more training makes it worse. And so there, there might yeah. be a little bit of a trap there. Uh, but in saying that, um, I think we might just dive into the, I guess the diagnosis early like signs of detection kind of thing. You did say that this overtraining syndrome is um, a diagnosis of exclusion. Like we've tried all these treatments, nothing's, nothing's worked. So it's almost like the, the last thing that it could be is this overtraining syndrome. Um, are there any other like um, questionnaires or like early detection signs, potentially if you're getting sick, like multiple times, it might be that you're, overreaching this non-functional overreaching but have you seen any early signs or any detection methods that can um, give us a bit of warning it varies a little bit there's no clean data that's the one thing that's true but if you're not sleeping well if you're having bad workouts if you've been doing a certain training load and that you just can't do that workout anymore <coughs> Again, the, the normal knee-jerk response in athletes and in many coaches is, well, you need to, to work harder. Well, that's probably exactly the wrong thing you need to do. You need to take a day off. You need to, in other words, change your periodization cycle to go from a, a longer period with a heavier periodization to a lighter period. And everybody says, well, I'm going to grow more slowly. Yeah, you're going to grow more slowly, but at least you're, you're growing. And, you know, the, the whole point of training is it should, you should have progression, you know, from early season to late season, you ought to be getting better. And uh, if you're not getting better, I mean, it's possible you're not training hard, but how many athletes have you ever met in your life who aren't training hard enough, who don't want it badly enough? I mean, I've never met one. I've, I've met a few people who were maybe just didn't want it to begin with, but they never trained hard. And, and those folks never got over training syndrome. They just didn't train hard enough. But the people that are training hard and you ask them, how does it feel? And they say, I'm, I'm knackered. I think that's the word you use in, in yep. Australia. <laughs> uh, and uh, he, here, when I was young, I was trying to be a runner and we would use the term, I feel like death warmed over which is, I feel like death. And then I, I put it in the refrigerator and I warmed it up again on the stove. <laughs> and um, if you're like that, where you're not progressing, then you got to really be asking the question, am I pushing too hard? And again, it's a calculated risk because if I'm, if I have the prize in front of me, if I say, okay, I'm an Olympic athlete. And if I have a great year in preparation, I can be on the podium. <clears throat> Being on the podium is inordinately important to people who are paying for it, the Olympic committees. It's really important to your sponsors. And so you're sort of seduced to try, okay, I'll train harder than I've ever trained. 
And again, the, the problem is then you, you begin to give away your recovery days. I mean, every coach, every athlete has a rhythm to their training. And the hard days are probably go ahead and do the hard day and do what you want to do. Sean is right. But when you start saying, okay, the easy day, my, and you say, what's my job on the easy day is to prepare for tomorrow. If I don't prepare for tomorrow, then I can't do today's workout. One of the most, I think, influential studies I ever did, we were in 1991, we were in, in Calgary, Canada, with the U.S. team trying to get ready for the 92 Winter Olympics. And we had a Polish coach, a guy named Stan Kotkowski, who had a very unusual idiom. He was always making something. One time I went to him and said, Stan, can you show me how to uh, skate better? Because, you know, I felt maybe I'd understand the sport better. He said, Foster, you're too old and you're too fat to skate. But we make special program for you. So, and I skated better with his new program. I still was horrible, but I skated better. Well, one day he said, we're going to have a recovery day. We're going to run 40 minutes. And Stan and Carl are going to run with you. And so we're a couple of 50-year-old guys. So, you know, that's going to be an easy day for the athletes. Well, of course, they all disappear. They zoom away from us. They get back to the stretching area. and They're saying, Stan, Stan, we're tired. We need a day off. We need recovery. We're going to get overtrained. Stan says, if you makes recovery, when I gives recovery, you not want stays off. That was one of those times you hit yourself in the head and say, this is brilliant. I went back and got some local athletes that I could, you know, hang around with longer. And I asked them to rate their workout. And I have a scale for, you know, rating how hard you're working. But then I asked the coach of that group of athletes to rate what they intended for them to do. Well, on the medium days, the athletes and the coaches had pretty good correspondence. But on the easy days, the athletes always did more than the coach intended, which meant on the hard days, and the biology is you've got to disturb homeostasis. You got to make your body stirred up to make it adapt. They couldn't go hard enough to really adapt themselves. And we've gone back and we've done, I've done this same experiment four different times here with different groups of athletes. Uh, so it's been done around the world with other groups of athletes. And the single common finding is if you assume the coach is right and the coach has a plan, the athlete, if they mis-execute it, mis-executes it by training too hard on these easy days. Mm. And so you almost need your technology to say, you know, you got to be sleeping more today. You got to have your heart rate down today. You got to have the number of steps down today. Uh, because on the hard day, that's the day we're going to make your body improve. If you're too tired from not recovering, then you can't do these workouts. And so you become really good at performing at a medium level. Mm. And, and nobody gives you a pro contract or nobody gives you a gold medal for being, uh, let's say, a miler who runs uh, uh, 338. You, you don't get a... a in the 1500 meters, you don't get a medal for that. If you're a 225 marathon runner, you don't get a, a medal for that. You know, you, you got to be running two hours in the marathon or, or something. But to do that, the hard days have to be really, really challenging. But then the recovery days haven't. And the mistake is, and we've seen it in the literature dozens of times, is the athletes make the mistake down here. Yeah. But again, it, it, it came from a coach 
saying to an athlete who is mouthing off, well, if you recover when I tell you to recover, <laughs> you won't be complaining. I think, so what, I think what, coaches have it right. I think the athletes just aren't listening. Yeah. We have um, introduced that concept of like that gray area where people do train too hard on their, their easy days. And it's something that like it's true in this overtraining syndrome, but it's also true for a recreational runner preparing for a marathon or just wanting to get a better 10 K time trial. They like that understanding that concept is um, beneficial. I've discussed it on previous episodes, but it's worth repeating that that well-designed program of recovering on your recovery days and going really easy on those really easy days just allows you to perform on your performance days when you do really need to um, kick in that upper gear or get into the the top like couple of percent of your performance so very interesting to highlight that back to the kind of like the early signs of detection i want to pick your brain a little bit um i think it was one of the papers that um consensus that you participate in i think they mentioned heart rate variability as like a a theory that's out there at the moment but i guess the data there's no data out there to to show it just yet but it's just exists in theory um can you have anything to add about that everybody wants it to be true and people (laughs) have been looking for they were looking for blood tests for a long period of time to see if you could do things with that um uh they've looked at heart rate variability and there's some tantalizing stuff but these again are very hard trials to do because athletes are like the american expression is herding cats I mean, it's, you know, to get athletes to do what you want them to do ahead of time is really hard thing to do. So if you're trying to control them and say, well, I'm purposely going to push you guys a little too hard and you guys, I'm going to keep on the program. A, I'm not sure that's ethical. And B, will the athletes execute what you're asking them to do? Uh, So everybody wants it to be true and everybody wants there to be a simple marker. Uh, One of the simple things we've tried to do is you ask how athletes are feeling uh, and you you hate to be that subjective about it. There's a guy in Norway named Steven Seiler, who's really, really bright guy, who's uh, worked with a a variety of athletes. And he was the one that came up with the sort of the, the, the 80, 20 endurance training plan. That's his creation. Well, one time he was working with some Dutch speed skaters and, he was hanging out with him for a couple of weeks. And so in the morning, everybody would uh, come down to the, uh, to the, the, the place where you eat for breakfast. And there was this one guy who was just obviously not adapting to training and he had his hair in his cereal I mean, he had quite long hair. And, you know, normally you're at breakfast, you begin to wake up, you have a cup of coffee, you talk to people and, and he was just sitting there like this, just with his hair falling down. So he has the, the hair in the cereal syndrome. <laughs> and so a lot of it's behavioral. And uh, uh, the same coach that I was working with, Dutch coach I was working with, a guy named Gerard Kemkers, uh, who he was the one that couldn't say variability, so I had to say monotony. And he, um, uh, I, I was talking to him about it, and he just put his hand in front of their face and said, if you look them in the eyes, you always know. But he was an elite coach who had like eight athletes to take care of. You can look eight athletes in the face every morning and figure it out. But if you're a, let's say you're a, a, the coach of a footy club, 
that's at the second level in Australia. And you've got how many players do they carry on the roster? 40 or something yeah, like a little that. bit less, but yeah, a lot. And the second level players are moving up and players are moving down. And so a given coach may not know an athlete particularly well. And then, so you look at athletes on the face and some of them look fine and some of them are acting like they look fine. And so you miss it and you have a program, but this one guy is being killed by the program. You need to give him a day off. But in a team sport, can you even do that culturally? Can mm-hmm. you say, okay, you know, you get to take the day off because you're a weakling, but you're really good on Saturday, so we're going to let you play. And it, that's not going to work. But if you get somebody who's weak or, or too young, you know, hasn't adapted or hasn't grown yet, then you can get them into the syndrome, and then they just never become good. They never live up to their promise. Well, was that that they didn't have the talent to go to the top or, or did the – the structure destroyed them on the way up hmm. because I mean, it's easy to talk about this in the pursuit sports, running, cycling, swimming, uh, speed skating, because performance is so quantitative, but, but well, well, what do you do with a guy who's playing league, you know, and, you know, you got to play with the team. You got to do what is done, but if he's falling a little bit short, all you can say is, well, you, you, you're not making your tackles when you're, you're supposed to, or you're not on the field where you're supposed yeah. to be. And is that overtraining syndrome or is it lack of talent or is it lack of coaching? Uh, we That's don't tricky. know, but, <laughs> but there, there's a good chance that a lot of athletes, you know, get, you know, tired like that. You've uh, picked a, um, a very puzzling topic with, uh, yeah. cause like, how do you know, how do you know if it's a training, if it's a lack of talent, yeah. if it's a, just a, a poor career, like path yeah. and poor structure, but the, I guess this is would be a nice segue into the the treatment and prevention side of things. And if we go back to the spectrum that I discussed at the start, where you know the further down the spectrum you go, the harder and harder the body's the the longer it's taking to recover, and then you know the you're no longer adapting to stimulus or to a training yeah. load. I guess when it comes to recovery, we've we've sort of mentioned the further that spectrum you are, or in the early days, you can just enhance your recovery, just focus on a well-designed training program. And then the more severe it gets, we just need to enhance recovery. And like you said, um, change up the, the periodization and kind of make sure we kickstart the, the athlete into a better well-designed program. But if we get even more severe in that, that spectrum into the realm of overtrained syndrome, if they are a young athlete and we've identified it, it's an ideal world and we're like, um, we don't continue pushing that athlete. And I guess the, the diagnosis is correct. And we're, um, they're still young. They've got a, a good career ahead of them. What, what do we do for them? Well, you, you push them away to where they're not buried deeply in it and say, look, you got to go do something else for a while. And it's the hardest thing to do. And if the athlete had a broken leg, it'd be easy. They'd have a cast on their leg and they could do their activity. And so that's really easy. But if you got overtraining syndrome, there's nothing objectively wrong with you. You're just a jerk. (laughs) So athletes don't want to do that. The culture is, well, if I'm, there's nothing wrong with me, I ought to be out there, but you, you got to push them away and say, no, you've got to go to get where you feel better. And the problem is it's like a broken leg. It's a season ending injury. You know, you got to say, okay, this is six or eight weeks. 
where you've got to go really easy. And then if you feel good, we'll give it a try. If you don't feel good, then we go back and do six or eight weeks. And they say, but coach, the championships is up here. I'm sorry, you're not going to the championships, not this year. And uh, then the, the, the other thing that goes with that is a lot of the really great athletes or these people who are these little, in the States, you call them training donkeys, where they could just absorb any amount of training you can do. And they're people that are quite fragile and can't do as much training, even, even if they're quite good. And so a coach has to learn how to manage the person or the, or the athlete has to learn how to manage it themselves to say, well, I'm going to take a day off for my sanity. And everybody looks at them like, what are you doing? Well, they're being smart is probably because they know they're, they're failing. But again, you got this cultural thing where from the time you were a kid, the harder you worked, the better you got. I mean, that's the, the trap of being an, an athlete. But once you get to a certain point, that doesn't necessarily work for you. In the, uh, there's a lot of work being done, probably more in Europe than in the States. Uh, but particularly with youth athletes, is to say you never have a, you never let them specialize until they're maybe 16 years of age. And so even if you got somebody who's a marvelous football player, you say, okay, you know, football season's over, you got to go do something else. You run or you swim or you lift weights or you do something and get away from football for a while. And then when that season's over, you go do something else because the ultimate progression of an athlete is going to be better. The later you force them to specialize, uh, the better they're going to be ultimately. But then you also got to find which ones are, can absorb work and which ones can't. In the U.S., for example, when I first started working with speed skaters, there was a fellow named Eric Hyden who was skating. He won every single race there was to have in the 1980 Olympics. He won five gold medals. If they'd had more races, I think he would have won them, but they only had five races. And he'd been world champion for a couple of times before that. He was completely dominant. Uh, Eric, you just could not get him tired. Uh, they would make a workout that would destroy everybody. They come back to the house, take a shower, and he'd come out and say, anybody interested in playing tennis? I mean, he was just recovered. And the next day when everybody else was dying, he was fully recovered. Now, Eric's an orthopedic surgeon now. He's a smart guy. He raced bikes professionally after he won his Olympic medals. But, but he's now like a 55-year-old guy, and he could probably make the U.S. speed skating team next year because he's just one of those unbelievably robust human beings that can absorb any amount of work. Well, then you say, everybody else says, well, if Haydn does this and Haydn wins, if I do this, I'm going to win. There's a logical fallacy there. You're not Eric Haydn. And, and then the problem, he also had a, a coach, a lady who was really driven and really into the first hard training that people started to do in the, in the 1970s. And so she wound up inheriting this kid who you couldn't make too tired. I mean, overtraining syndrome was a non sequitur for him. But for a lot of the other speed skaters, they wound up trying to do Eric's workouts and it just wasn't going to happen. And there's all sorts of examples of you know, really top athletes that it doesn't matter how hard you train them. They just seem to absorb it. Uh, in the States, most recently, Michael Phelps, a swimmer who won 
a whole lot of gold medals. He could just absorb training. And there was no problem with, you know, but being the first guy there and the, and the last guy to leave, he recovered every day. And so those people may be a functionally immune to this kind of problem. But for the rest of people, you got to find the, you got to find the balance. I'll, I'll say this, the guy who was my professor, this guy named Jack Daniels, who's better known as a running coach than as a physiologist, but he's a good physiologist. The last year I was at Texas, he had a young runner, a guy named Fred Cooper, who could run four minutes in the mile, which at that time in colleges was a quite good performance. But he was really a fragile guy. It, but if he was with you with 300 meters to go, he was never going to lose. Your only ability to ever beat him was to get away from him. But if he trained more than about three days a week, he just got hurt. And so D Daniels had the, the Cooper rule. He said, I want you there on Saturday for racing. I want you there on Monday and Wednesday to train. If I see you at the track or if I see you out jogging around the city, I'm going to kick you off the team. So he was, he was literally running three days a week. He wasn't even doing recovery mile. His recovery was to go to the library and study. And yet he was winning the local championships. And you say, well, if he could train harder, he would be better. Yeah, he would have been, but he wouldn't have been running because he would have been in a cast. With the the top athletes, like you say, the Phelps of the world, do you just put that as like a genetic outlier or just like genetically gifted? Is there any answers for them? No, I think they're just uh, they're people that God touched and made them special. Uh, today, um, Diego Maradona died. Uh, and, you know, he's, I don't know if he's the best soccer player ever, but he's, there's a pretty short list around him. And Diego probably did everything wrong you could do. He, I think he partied as much as he trained, but um, he was just special. He was different. And uh, uh, so whatever, whatever happened, he was going to perform at a high level. And if you recognize that, then you say, okay, I'm going to train these guys and I'm going to get really outstanding performances. But those people probably would have been good under any circumstances. Uh, so what, if you go to back in the history of Australia, there was a, uh, a runner you guys had named Herb Elliott. He won the 1960 1500 meters. He was a great miler. Well, he was great because he hooked up with uh, Percy Sarity, who was this sort of legendary weird coach that trained people really, really, really hard. Well, Elliott thrived under that. But other people who were in the same training group did not necessarily thrive because it was too much for them. And uh, so, you know, if you find these really remarkable people, that's fine. They don't get overtraining syndrome. But then what happens to them, say, late in their career? Um, there's a good example in, in the U.S. There's a guy named Jim Ryan, who for many years held a mile and 1,500 meter world records. He became a silver medalist in... Um, 1968 behind Kipchoge Kano in what I think is the, the best uh, race ever run. Um, but um, he competed for a few more years after that. And really the last year he competed, he was running the mile in 410, 415. He would start with the group and he just couldn't go. Now we didn't have a word for overtraining syndrome then. 
but he had lost his zoom. I mean, this was a guy who could run, I think his fastest performance was 351 in the mile and 333 in the 1500. I mean, that's for contemporary times, he was ahead of the world. And yet by the end of his career on normal, on what he said was normal training, he was running the mile in 410 or 415. I mean, which is not even a good time for a schoolboy. And so, and he, he said, the only thing he can think is he was in the university and he was doing more stuff and life was just harder and he lost his Zoom. And yet if he trained easier, he couldn't perform. So that's the pickle you're in. And then what's the knee jerk response that he's gonna have? I've always trained harder and I get better. I guess it, it depends on the individual. Like you have to try a couple of different things, uh, especially from like a recreational perspective. Um, don't compare yourself to others, compare yourself to you and how you bounce back from, or how you respond to recovery, how you bounce back yeah. from hard sessions. Yeah. Now the, the other thing that coaches do not do enough now, but if you go back into the history, into the 1950s, when, when uh, Roger Bannister first broke the mile in four minutes, uh, his coach was a guy named Franz Stanfield, who later came to Australia and coached John Landy. And I think even coached, uh, who was the guy, uh, Roger D Dobell, who won the 800 meters in, um, uh, in Mexico City in 68. I think uh, Franz Stanfield was his coach. Well, he had what he called index workouts. And, and in those days, everybody ran intervals all the time. But for example, if you're going to run a, a, a set of uh, repeat 400 meters and you're going to run them, let's say, on a three-minute send-off and you go and uh, you say, okay, early in the year, maybe Bannister would run 67 seconds. The next month, he'd run 66. The next month, he'd run 65s. And across the training year, he would try to go better progression. Get you know That's the whole point of the sport. And then he got down to where he was running about 61 and a half and just couldn't go any better. And uh, Fran Stanfield, being a very, very smart guy, said, hey, boys, I want you to go to Wales and I want you to hike for two weeks. Get away from the track. Don't do a running workout. Just go to Wales and have a holiday and uh, hike around and have a beer or two. Well, ba well, Bannister came back and suddenly he starts running 60 seconds for the his repeats and two weeks later he breaks the four minute mile and so I, I and coaches don't do these index workouts as often as I think they ought to do there was it, risky. It's boring to do the same bloody workout every week but if you get better why are you out there you're out there to get better mm. and so it doesn't have to be every workouts under pressure but one workout a week one workout every two weeks should be the same workout under the same conditions and it, and it worked for Bannister, and he was training in England on a cinder track in the winter. And the weather in, in England is, is miserable in the winter. Cinder tracks, if they're wet, are miserable. And yet he was still doing these progressive get better every month index workouts. And so if you go and do, okay, I'm going to do this workout every week or every other week, one nasty, mean, ugly workout every week, and if I stop getting better, why am I not getting better? It's really hot. Okay, it's hot. The wind is blowing. Okay, the wind's blowing. But if you can do it under the same conditions and you start going this way, something's wrong. 
And the simplest thing is wrong is your body's beginning to say, I need more recovery. In which case you ought to call up Shauna Halson, who's a (laughs) very nice lady who dreams up all these recovery strategies. And what's the big purpose of the recovery strategies? It's to make you do something that's really specific to not do anything. Mm. In other words, it's like you put on a heart rate monitor and say, I don't want your heart rate above 110 today. But coach, I got a walk to do that. Well, fine, go for a walk. What's your job today? Your job today is to get ready for tomorrow. Yeah. And if you don't do your job today, then you can't do your job tomorrow when we're going to try to make you better. Very good. I had a, a lot of um, listener questions at the start of the month that I had. Uh, I was allocating to certain episodes. And because our interview was a bit last minute, we've only just planned this the last couple of days, yeah. I um, allocated Melinda's question. And she asks, um, should I be consistently getting a certain amount of sleep every night? Or should I try to get more sleep after my hard and long sessions? Good question. What do you, what do you think? There's not hard evidence. If there is evidence, that, then Shauna Halson has it because that's her, she's the top person in the world on recovery. But you can say as a general principle, uh, athletic people don't sleep enough. You know, whether you're a student or whether you're an adult with a job and a family, you're trying to fit training into that kind of thing. Most people don't sleep enough. And so the more you can sleep as a general principle, the better. Uh, the general rule here is if you can get uh, uh, 10 hours of sleep a night, then you're doing a good job of it. But who in the world's got 10 hours to sleep, you know, and have a normal life, whether you're a student or whether you're a, hell, I'm 73 years old and uh, semi-retired and I can't get 10 hours of sleep a night. And so that's hard to do. Certainly after your hard days, you need it because what's your job that, that night is to recover. What's your job the next day is to recover. And so sleep's the best recovery medicine we've got. Uh, but as a general rule, whatever you're sleeping, uh, 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 add an hour or two to that, you'll be better off as an athlete. Yeah, but, I think that's a nice summary. But, but how, how you accomplish that, I do not know. Yeah, yeah, people have lives and it's kind of tough. Yeah. Uh, okay, very good. I think um, when it comes to, it's not just as simple as, <clears throat> yes, after a hard training session, we need to like focus on our recovery. But I think you can take a bit of a, um, a bird's eye view approach of like your weekly sleeping hours and see if you can enhance that. If you can add an hour or two here or there, even if it's on your recovery days, the more sleep that you get, the more you're better you're going to absorb load um, for future sessions. And so it might not necessarily be as simple as long sleep after a a long session. It might just be like, just try and um, sleep as much as you can. If you do have that luxury and your, your body's going to recover and bounce back um, even on your easy days, just over the course of a week, over the course of a month, you're going to be a more resilient athlete and absorb more load. um, If you do enhance your sleep, I guess, would you agree with that? Yeah, and, and certainly the other thing we know about sleep hygiene is you got to turn the screens off. In other words, you watch the television, your brain's getting something that makes you not sleep. You have your, your nice little cell phone, uh, which you Facebook and do whatever else you're doing. Guilty. You, you, you don't sleep as well. And, so, and they've done some, I, I, I can't say, I, I say I've seen them published, 
but I've heard them reported where they've tried to do studies with um, particularly collegiate athletes in the U.S. And particularly um, what's coming to mind right now is, is, is basketball, which is an important university sport here. But they're playing a couple of games a week, which often involve travel. And then they have a student load and students have weird schedules anyway. But there's so many things you can do with your cell phone to entertain yourself or to, you know, to t- talk to your friends on Zoom or, or whatever else. But your brain's not being prepared to sleep. And so the, the, the biggest trick is you say, it, it comes eight o'clock at night, turn all the electronics off. If you're bored, read a book. You know, that's hard to tell people to do who are 18 years old. But if you do that, then when sleep time comes, you go to sleep. But if you're fooling with your phone till midnight, then your body doesn't want to sleep till two, but you got an early class in the morning. So you wind the the place where all this gives is your sleep gets shorter, which means your body doesn't recover. And in something like basketball, it's like uh, any of the big team sports, you've got a long season, the long preparation time, there's a lot of games, it stretches out for months. And then on top of that, you're trying to fit a life around it because you know they've got studies and whatever. <coughs> so um, uh, uh, turn the phone off. Yeah. You know, to turn the computer <laughs> off. But that's the <laughs> hardest thing in the world to do. Yeah. And as we wrap up today's episode, are there any kind of final takeaways that you'd like a recreational runner to know that we haven't necessarily discussed on the episode? Well, the, the big trick is you're not getting better. It ain't because you're not trying. Mm-hmm. It's probably because you're pushing too hard, particularly if there's a goal in front of you. You say, if I train hard and have a good result, I can get here or I can get here or I can get here. Uh, and then number two is I really think the index workouts, even if it's only every other week, do one. If you're not getting better, you got to ask yourself, why am I not getting better? I mean, there's three possibilities. I'm, I'm at my limit. Uh, I'm not training hard enough. I'm training too hard. Well, there's only one that's good that can be fixed. And that's I'm not training hard enough. And I've never met the athlete who's not doing that. Yeah. And sometimes the magic bullet can be a bit counterintuitive to take some time off or go do something else, go for a hike and um, take your mind off what that end goal, what you're focusing on. That's extremely counterintuitive for a lot of people, but sometimes can be that magic bullet. And I guess the last thing I'd say is you work as hard on your recovery days and recovering as you work on your hard days to make yourself better. Because if you don't do this on the recovery days, you won't be able to do that. We've done that experiment uh, half a dozen times in my own lab, and it's been done around the world. And that's the single place where most athletes make a mistake. Yeah, very good. And if I would just to reiterate another takeaway that's already been discussed, it might be to um, everyone has their own individual abilities to recover. Like you can, you, you can't compare yourself to another athlete and how they're responding to training and that worked for them. So let me train, let me work that hard. Cause you might just be extremely different with different genetics and you could actually thrive as a runner with a two or three hard sessions per week. And then just doing um, not running on any other uh, on those other days. So I think maybe a trial and error, if you are noticing a plateau or a decrease in your performance yeah. um, would be definitely a benefit 
And I do know that mainly the, the people that listen to this podcast are recreational runners and overtraining syndrome might be extremely rare in that population, but they're still preparing for marathons. They're still, they're still running ultras. They're, they still put themselves through a lot of load. And even just like when we're talking about that spectrum, they might just be somewhere on that in the mild case of that spectrum, but just appreciating the um, benefits of recovery and the benefits of a well-structured plan. Um, this whole entire topic can be extremely beneficial for them. Yeah, certainly. So uh, this, this has probably been my easiest interview to, to do because I just let you do your thing and let you tell these yeah. really engaging, informative stories and pretty much tell us like the genesis and the story of overtraining syndrome. It's been a pleasure and it's been, like I said, very easy on my behalf. So um, once again, thank you for coming on to yeah. the Run Smarter podcast. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Run Smarter podcast. I hope you can see the impact this content has on your future running. If you appreciate the mission this podcast is creating, it would mean a lot to me if you submit a rating and review. If you want to continue expanding your knowledge, please subscribe to the podcast and get instant notifications when a new episode comes out. If you want to learn quicker, then join our Facebook group by searching the podcast title. If you want to take your learning to the next step, including injury prevention principles, injury-specific insights, and modules to boost your running performance, then head to our website by searching runsmarter.online and jump into our Run Smarter online course. Once again, thank you for listening and becoming a Run Smarter scholar. And remember, knowledge is power.